Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Chris Versteeg. Chris had a 15-year professional hockey career, scoring 400 points over almost 700 National Hockey League games, playing for seven different teams, including your Toronto Maple Leafs. He is a two-time Stanley Cup champion in two different stints with the Chicago Blackhawks, winning championships in 2010 and 2015. After retiring three years ago, Chris has become a tech entrepreneur by co-founding Clever, an athletic performance mobile app. Welcome, Chris, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm uh, in Whitby, Ontario. It's where my wife's from, so it's kind of where I've landed now. But yeah, so I'm watching a lot more Leaf games these days than I used to Oilers. Oh, well, we're going to be talking about all that for sure. If I may ask, how is your family? I understand you are the proud father of three. Yeah, I have two boys, a seven and a six-year-old boy, and I have a young girl. She's three. So I'm, I have a, a hockey academy for U6 to U9 hockey players out in the Whitby, Oshawa area. And so I just pretty much got into coaching my kids' age, uh, realizing the lack of development in the, the Hockey Canada youth system. So I kind of started my own thing, and and that's kind of taken off. But that's that's more of a full-time job than even being a tech entrepreneur now is uh, <laughs> coaching your kids. So needless to say, everyone's on skates, and it, it sounds like uh, you're still on skates. You haven't put them away. No. Yeah, I don't have my equipment. I have my skates and gloves. That's about it. <laughs> Uh, what is your current life like as an entrepreneur? Are you in the office? Are you on the road? It, so we don't, again, we've had the company since October of 2020. Uh, we founded it in April and we've never all been in the same office at one time. So between our developers, uh, we've hired a CEO just recently. My brother, who's our CFO slash COO, None of us have been in the same office. He lives in Germany. One guy's in Philly. One guy's in Chicago. Another's in Halifax. Our developers are from Halifax. So it's just basically get on get on Google Meet one to two, three times a day. I do all my demos through Google Meet now. And um, when I have to do important meetings or do certain things or go to live events, obviously I'm there. But but for my hockey, you know, for my academy, we're at an event. You know, we're at a tournament once a month. Uh, literally and so clever basically follows me automatically to those events so it's pretty it kind of goes hand in hand I guess it is amazing I mean I guess I'm aging myself but I was always an in-office five days a week guy obviously COVID's changed that I think all of us I certainly didn't know what a zoom meeting was before COVID happened but it's incredible today the way people can work and how you can make more efficient use of your time so it's great (laughs) Yeah, and that's the thing when when hiring everyone, everyone wants, especially in the tech area, whether it's, you know, again, we're not Google or Amazon or anything crazy like that, where you have to have, you know, 2000 people in, a, in an office, the, the way we work and the way the people we hire generally want to be at home with their kids. Uh, they don't want to move across the country. And, and the company we're at with no, you know, hard goods, we're just software, you don't really need to you know, you don't need to be at a office really doing much. I mean, for the collaborative piece, it's really nice. You know, I really love being in front of people and talking to people face to face. I still, there is nothing like it. There never will be anything like it. So you do still need to do that. And again, that's where I think the best collaboration comes from is getting face to face and working with people uh, closely. But again, the office stuff and letting people work that that this can take care of itself. The, the sure. Zoom. It's a nice balance. Still need that connection, as you know. Of course. But- Let's go back all the way, get the Christopher Steeg story. Where were you born and describe your upbringing? 
So Lethbridge, Alberta is where I was born. Uh, it's about half hour north of the Montana border. Um, so if you watch Yellowstone, <laughs> yeah. uh, very, very similar, you know, again, we're not quite in the mountains, but we have a pretty similar landscape, you know, right at the, right at the foot of the mountains. So, you know, you go about 20, 30 minutes west of me, you got the beautiful views. I didn't grow up with much. I think the story is pretty well known. You know, my mom didn't have much. My grandparents basically had to pay for a lot of what we had to do. And if it wasn't for them, there's no way I would have ever had skates on my feet. So I'm a very grateful person to those two people who gave me literally every opportunity to be a hockey player. Because without them, basically, my grandma's always said, you'd probably be dead or in jail. And she made it as a literal term. It wasn't even a joke. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, you grow up in a harder area of Lethbridge. And, and you know, you see some of your friends today that have been, you know, they're dead or in jail. Again, it's not to say that we have the upbringing of certain people in certain very hard areas of, of Toronto and that. But you can go down the wrong path fast. But it was people like my grandma parents and even my father and mother who you know even though they were divorced they keep you on the rails and they keep you on the straight and narrow and focused on your task at hand and I think that's why me and my brothers were able to navigate that type of upbringing and and stay as relatively out of crap as possible I mean we always got in trouble here and there but um, because of our dedication to hockey and that's literally it I look back and without hockey who knows who I'd be today so the upbringing not much was given a lot was earned and You know, I try to, again, it's a different upbringing for my kids now, right? When my kids ask for things for me, I can, I can give them those things where when I was a kid, I'd ask for something I couldn't give it. It's just a much different upbringing and you have to learn balance for your kids now, right? They can't just be given everything. They have to learn to earn things. They have to understand that life's not easy and no one's going to give handouts. So, but I've learned that through my upbringing and uh, again, a lot of a lot of character testing moments, but I'm still standing, relatively standing. Uh, depends on which hip, which day. But <laughs> yeah. it, it, again, it was a it was a great childhood. At the end of the day, I look back, had a lot of great friends, a lot of great moments, and a lot of moments who've shaped me into who I am today. Chris, you were given one thing in particular. What do you remember about your first hockey stick? Yeah, it was a Lethbridge Broncos wooden stick. Um, I still remember it, green with a wood blade and again it was just the size of a a plastic wooden or plastic mini stick i remember i wasn't uh, listening very well uh, and my old man decided to break it over his knee and said if you ain't gonna listen you ain't gonna get this stick so Mm. um i still remember that stick breaking there's some tears um learning moment apparently listen to the old man or you're gonna (laughs) get it you know well, Chris, you had a four-year Western Hockey League career, and although you never actually ended up playing for them, you were drafted by the Boston Bruins, 134th overall, fifth round of the 2004 NHL draft. What do you remember about your draft experience? What do you remember about the process leading up to the draft and, and actually being drafted? So I was never supposed to be drafted. I had, I think there was one ranking where they saw me sneaking in maybe to the eighth or ninth round. I talked to my coach at the time. Uh, he said there was a possibility of me getting drafted. He was actually the first person who told me that there was a possibility of me being drafted. So I, uh, I didn't actually go to the draft. I was at my high school graduation that night and they used to have a thing called safe grad. So basically, you know, all the kids go down to the coolies and, and you can, you know, you're 18, 19 or you're 18 at that time. And in Alberta, that's the legal drinking age. So basically you go down with all your grad class and you have some drinks and, you know, I remember it being six in the morning and my ex-girlfriend was like, okay, it's time to leave. We got to go, you know? So I remember we went home and, you know, I wasn't in the best of 
shape. And I remember getting out of the car and, you know, kind of lying on the grass at 637 in the morning. And my mom comes outside crying, yelling that, you know, Rich Sutter just called her and he's in Carolina because he was working, I believe, for Phoenix at that time. I, I, I'm not 100% certain if it was for Phoenix, but maybe either Phoenix or Calgary. And he'd called my mom to say that I'd been drafted. And I, I remember being like, no, there's no chance. And then I was like, well, what round? And she goes, fifth round. So it was uh, it was good. I, I mean, I got to go to my grad. I got to be with friends. I got to have my parents see me graduate from high school. Um, and again, that was when there was the two days. So day one was uh, rounds one through three. Day two was rounds four through nine. Um, so again, obviously, I didn't go on day one because that would have been rounds one through three. I didn't think I was going to be. And that's why I was at my graduation. But it was a day that... You know, I didn't remember a lot at the start of it, but by the end of it, I remembered, <laughs> I remembered quite a bit and it was, uh, it was emotional. You talk to your, you know, your grandparents, your parents, and you start to thank them for giving you the opportunity to be drafted. But then you also understand, okay, this is a cool step, but holy heck, there's a long way to go in order to play. It certainly is just a step. Chris, after playing for the Bruins American Hockey League affiliate, the Providence Bruins, you were traded to the Chicago Blackhawks organization. How did you take that news? It was hard news. So I was on the bus. Um, we we're going from Providence to Manchester and it was about halfway there. And at that time, actually, I was top 10 in the AHL and scoring as a rookie. Uh, I think I, I think I finished like, you know, top 20 that year in the AHL, but I was top 10. In, and again, like I said, as a rookie, David Kredge was right there with me, right behind me in scoring. And um, he just got called up to play for Boston. So this is kind of leading you up in my mindset leading up to the trade. So he's just played up. He ended up getting knocked out the night before. Some guy elbowed him in the head playing for Buffalo and Kredge was out for a couple of weeks for a concussion. Sean Donovan got hurt. And I remember they were probably four to six points out of the playoffs. So I started to think, holy cow, it's my turn to get called up, right? Like there's no one else on our team that's going to get called up. So I'm in the bus and I'm on the way to Manchester and uh, I get called to the front of the bus. I'm like, this is my time. You know, I'm going to I'm going to the show. This is my moment. And Scott Gordon's like, hey, Chris, I just want to let you know you've been traded. And I was like, OK, what? I was like, I'm, I'm top 10 in rookie scoring in the league. Like, you know, I'm playing good. I'm doing everything you ask me. He goes, it's not up to me. You know, it's up to the team. And that's when Peter Shirelli got brought in and he wanted to make some changes. And then Peter Shirelli's guy was Brandon Bochensky. And that's who I ended up getting traded for. Um, was Brandon Bochensky. He was a guy that was actually leading the AHL in scoring that year, had like 33 goals in 36 games at the moment. And uh, yeah, so I remember I went to the game in Manchester, sat in the top row, got interviewed that game. You know, what's it feel like to get traded? Then I had to get back on the bus, ride the bus with the guys back from Manchester to Providence, pack my stuff up and drive on the East Coast all the way down to Virginia that night. So it was, uh, it was, I remember on the bus crying to be to be honest. Um, Don Sweeney called me, you know, letting me know again it wasn't his choice, right? He he wanted to keep me. Obviously, Pete comes in, wants to bring his guys in, but I just remember being emotional because I had a couple of rough years prior to that, and uh, I wasn't, uh, you know, in the couple of years prior to that, I wasn't dedicated enough and wasn't in a good headspace. Finally, kind of got my career on track and did everything I could, and now all of a sudden I come out of nowhere and I'm top ten and scoring in the A. So I feel like I'm doing the right thing and then I get traded. So mm -hmm. I think that psychologically messed with me a little bit. And uh, then I had to go back, you know, to Norfolk and rework my way up a lineup. Like I was first line in Providence, first everything. And then I get to Norfolk and they put me on the fourth line. So that's, 
that's where the life as a pro, it, it's tricky, right? You work your way up, you get traded, you go back to the bottom. And then you're like, yeah. I just worked tooth and nail to get my, my cred. And now I'm just on a new team. The coach doesn't know me. The coach is actually, and me and him have talked about it and we're good friends today. He was pissed that I got traded for Bochensky, right? Mm-hmm. And you traded the best scorer in the league for a young rookie again, who I was good, but that's a big step down of a player you're getting. And he's pissed. So I'm on the fourth line and, you know, and I'm not playing much. So it was a trying time and a trying moment. Obviously it worked out in the end, but it didn't start off good. Who was that coach you had to uh, reconcile with? That's um, Mike Havland. Okay. Mike Havland. So he ended up coaching me in Chicago for two years. um, And we still stay connected till this day. That's great. I I think just to what you're speaking of, Chris, step forward, step backwards. Here's the very compelling headline to me. In 2005, you're working in a sport check, selling tracksuits and rollerblades. Three years later, you're playing in the Western Conference Finals for the Chicago Blackhawks. Talk about that journey. Yeah, so I remember 2003, roughly, I started to work at Sport Check. You know, I'm I'm 17 years old selling rollerblades and shoes. I know I was drafted, but again, I wasn't fully committed to the game, and I wasn't totally in love with the game. I had a couple issues with a coach, and, you know, there's a few guys, and I just didn't think hockey was really going to be my thing. I was actually about to go to school, and I was starting school to be a, a firefighter at 19, and now I'm, you know, I'm working in sport check, selling rollerblades again. Actually, I got fired from hard goods that year at 19. And then I had to, I had to sell like more bathing suits and stuff near the end. Again, I wasn't a very committed worker at sport check, but I was there. Yeah. And I remember kind of after my 19 year old year, I got a chance with Providence, went back that summer against start, you know, I played with Providence the last couple months. Uh, went back, worked at Sport Check again that summer, a little bit in selling more bathing suits and stuff that summer, clothing. But I remember being like, I don't want to do this. Like, I don't want to work at Sport Check anymore. I better commit everything I have. And that summer I went to work, not only physically, but mentally. I worked mentally every night. I would go to my trainer's house. We'd go through areas of my mind that I wasn't fully trusting. So did I trust my ability? Was I confident in what I can do? Was I confident in what I could do? So I remember I just... I attacked my ability from every angle, physically and mentally that summer. And again, that allowed me, you know, I signed that deal with Boston and then it kind of went from there, right? I had an unbelievable year in Providence. I do end up getting traded, but then I re reconfigure the next year, go back to Rockford, play really well, get called up and kind of the rest is history. But again, it was, I think I had a lot of trying times in my childhood and you know, especially in junior and getting traded, go to the pro getting traded, that I was prepared to go through the highs and lows. Sometimes I almost searched out the lows I find in my life, in my career in hockey. I was like, wow, things are going too good right now. You know, it just didn't make sense. So I remember sometimes when things are going good, it's almost like I needed that that fire in me to something to piss me off. Um, but again, it's a different mindset in today's world because I have kids and things, but that's how I felt in those days. And yeah, going from working at sport check, playing in a Western Conference Finals within three years, you know, you're just like, this is crazy. It's amazing. Well, your recalibration clearly worked, Chris, because you had an amazing rookie campaign, the 2008-2009 season. You were, in fact, a Calder Trophy finalist for Rookie of the Year with Chicago. You then played a key role in the 2010 Stanley Cup playoffs, leading the Blackhawks to a championship, putting an end to the 49-year Stanley Cup drought experienced in Chicago. Does this sound familiar, Leaf fans? Yes, it does. Chris, what do you recall about the magical 2010 playoff run culminating in a championship? This must have been like 
crazy times in Chicago. I don't think people quite, unless you were a part of that world, understood how big we were in Chicago. I mean, we went from 2007, I'd come to a bar and I'd have to go to the back of the line and I'd have an NHL card and they didn't even care. And then, you know, 2008 rolls around, Kane and Taze are there, all these AHL guys have come up and we're on one team. Everywhere we show up, 2008, 2009, 2010, they would have kicked anyone out of any table and give us that table we wanted. Any any restaurant, bar, anywhere you call it. And I remember going to the bar just with some of our teammates and 500 people sitting there watching us drink like we were celebrities from Hollywood. You know, it was a really, it was a really cool time. And we understood the connection we had to the city. It was a very deep connection, whether it be, you know, going out and meeting fans, talking to fans. We were out in the community every day, signing autographs, doing jersey giveaways, whatever it may be. You know, if we're out having drinks, fans wanted to talk to us. The team was very approachable. We just had a deep love and connection with that city, and I still do to this day. But nothing to me, even in 2015, but not no team was as special to the city at that time than that, you know, 2008, 2009, 2009, 2010 team because of you know, just us being one of the fans almost. That's how we kind of mm-hmm. acted almost, right? And, you know, it started 2008, 2009. We end up having a great season, lose to Detroit. We understand we had to refine and retweak some things. We bring in Hosa, we bring in Kopecky. That kind of gives us a little bit more push to get us over the top. We go into the playoffs again. We're down, or it's 2-2 and we're down 2-1, I think it was, playing Nashville. I can't remember the score, but we're shorthanded. Hosa scores with like, there goes to the penalty box, takes a five minute penalty. Kane scores with like 30 seconds left. We kill off the last four minutes and win it in overtime. It's just like that moment right there. I remember being like, okay, we're going to win the cup. Like, yeah. You don't just have moments like this as a team. And we're such a close team. We're a tight knit family. And a lot of these guys are still best friends with till today. So, and then again, you go to the, the, the parade, there's, two and a half, three million people there. There's two there's two million people there on the ground, let alone, you know, the half million people plus in the skyscrapers throwing confetti. It was just uh it was a magical moment. Again, 2015 parade was massive, but nothing comparison to the 2010. And I think it was just again, they hadn't won in so long. The connection to the city of the team was incredible and we truly love the fans like we were we would try to be around them all the time and try to be at events all the time and and that's what the hawks don't do good now right yeah pretty critical of them now and even some of these teams right like you need to have a deep connection with the fan base you need to be out in the city you need to be doing a lot of things to connect fans and especially young fans right you need fans at the age of six, seven, eight, so they stay with you till they're 80. Mm-hmm. And that's what finding, you know, the best teams do. They connect to that young fan base. They get every fan base, again, from no matter the age. But in Chicago, I remember getting told that before the Hawk fans were generally middle, middle to older men, right? And when we came along, they actually said it was like a 50-50 split of women and men, all the age of 18 to 40 women, mm-hmm. right? that you never thought was your typical fan base. And now we created a new fan base of fans that love the Hawks and they were a part of it. And they're just incredible supporters of us. So I think that's, that's what they're missing now um, from a, from a business standpoint, they're missing a lot of things to be honest, but that's one of them. Mm-hmm. And we just had it. We just loved being around our fans and, and, and sharing our, uh, our times with them. 
Well, that 2010 celebration, you get me so excited, Chris, because you can only imagine what would happen here in Toronto. You saw what the parade was like for the Raptors. It's going to be even bigger once the Leafs get over that hump. It'd be wild here. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't really imagine it. Now, having said all that, as soon as the celebration from the 2010 Cup win was done, you learned firsthand hockey is indeed a business. You were traded to the Toronto Maple Leafs only three weeks after winning the Cup. Were you shocked? Well, no. So... When we won, it was me, Vince Vaughn, and Stan Bowman, and we're having a drink in a bar. And uh, I remember Vince asking Stan who was all going to get traded. And Stan told me right there that I was going to be ones getting traded. Again, I didn't know if it was Toronto, who it was. Who it was. I heard it was actually Florida that I was supposed to go to because Dale Talon was in Florida. But yeah, so that was the first news I got was in an alley again, having a, well, in a bar in this kind of back area, having a drink with Vince and, and Stan. And uh, three weeks went by, and yeah, I get a call, and it's Stan telling me that he went, he sent me to Toronto, and then I got a call from Brian Burke. Uh, he talked a little bit about it, and yeah, it's you know we had our day with the cup, which was kind of strange, and you got people wearing Toronto Maple Leaf jerseys, so <laughs> it's like you wanted them to you know, and I want to wear a Hawks jersey because I want it with the Hawks, but everyone's like, are you with the Leafs now? Who do we wear? Yeah, so I was like, yeah, I still wear the Hawks for now, right? Like I won the cup with the Hawks. Chris, you only played in 53 games with the Maple Leafs before being traded to the Philadelphia Flyers. But this being the Toronto Legends podcast, I hope you will indulge us and share any memories you had from your time playing uh, with Toronto. There's a lot of memories in Toronto. I really like Toronto. I thought it was, uh, obviously our team wasn't great. I didn't think we were as bad as people thought or said. Like we had egos tossed at us on the ice. It was pretty funny. It was the ego incident. It was the ego incident. There's a lot of that. You know, my car was spit on. People didn't really like how I was playing at the start. And again, I kind of, I agreed with them. I wasn't good at the start of the season, especially the first 10, 15 games. But after that, you know, I thought I played really well. Had I, at one point, 33 points in 33 games, um, was playing at a really high clip and uh, felt good. But the, you know, the stories I remember, again, that first phone call with Brian Burke, never talking to him. He was kind you know, he's a, he's a big deal in Canada and in the States, but especially growing up a hockey fan and having a conversation with someone that you used to watch on TV every day was a really weird thing. You're like, Holy cow. Am I actually talking to Brian? Burke? Like, <laughs> this is the, this is pretty cool. And then you get to Toronto and I remember they brought me to a news station and they brought me to a couple places and there's, you know, a couple hundred people standing out there willing to meet you. So you got to meet a little bit of the fan base and just coming here in general. And, you know, you see the guys in the room, the Gilmore, Sittlers, all these guys that are around the team. And these guys are legends, right? Again, I was never a Toronto fan. I grew up in Western Canada, but you're just looking at guys who are legends that are constantly always around the team. And I thought it was a really cool experience. And then to cap it all off, Phil Kessel was my roommate. And okay. I knew Phil from Boston and Phil's a, he's a close friend of mine, but yeah, just constant comedy with that guy right like every single day was a new story was a new wasn't yeah, a new story is the best way to put it he's uh, a lightning rod in this town yeah he is he's he is a lightning rod but he is one of the most kinding caring and compassionate people you'll ever meet he is the biggest freak athlete you'll ever meet like me and him you know me and him used to go at it i used to chirp him about being weak you know i'd be like look at you look at your body there's no chance you could lift as much <laughs> as me you know, and then we'd go and he'd throw like four pizzas aside on a, on a squat rack and do it 10 times without even making a, you know, without even making a sweat. So he's a freak athlete and he's just an incredible teammate. Now, yeah, he's a lightning rod because of 
his personality. Sometimes he didn't want to talk to the media. I remember even being in the room. He'd be like, I'm not doing the media today. There's no chance I'm going in there, Steger. I am not going in there. Or he'd tell the, the media people, they put his name on the board. I'm not doing it today. I did it yesterday, you know. But mm-hmm. even even that in itself was comical. We'd always be chirping, Phil, you got to get out there. You got to talk to them, Phil. Like, you know, he he was a lightning rod. But I think deep down, he he kind of enjoys it. Chris, when you had finished and bounced around with a few different teams, you found yourself in Chicago again, and you helped the Blackhawks again win their sixth championship franchise history. This was their third over a six-year span, the second Stanley Cup of your career. What do you remember about the second cup-winning championship for Chicago in 2015? Yeah, that that championship was incredible as well. The team was, you know, a lot of the same core guys. It was different in the sense of, you know, half that first team was gone. So it was... um, it was just a lot of other guys that came in, did their role, did their part, and helped the team win a championship. Me personally, that year started off incredible. Then I broke my hand. I was out for a couple months. I went into the playoffs. I didn't have a good first round. I had actually osteous pubis, so I had to get injections into my pubic bone. Um, and then I was ready to play, you know. And then I, you know, I was ready to play. I think in that Minnesota series, I ended up getting healthy scratched in the rest of the Minnesota series and the start of the Anaheim series. So I remember me personally, it was hard sitting out, um, but the team was playing so good. So you're happy for the guys. And then I got my chance to play in the finals and play the games in the finals, help set up a big goal in game five. And, you know, that piece for me personally helped a lot to help me feel like I could contribute again. And, uh, you know, especially through the ups and downs of that year, again, I had a hip surgery, ACL, two groin, hand, all within two and a half years leading up to that Stanley Cup. So I was in the hospital bed a lot within 26 months, right? So that Stanley Cup to me was um, was very special in that sense of, hey, you went through a ton. You weren't able to train all the time. Again, you were in a hospital bed. You were recovering probably 80% of that those 26 months through hip surgeries, groin, ACL, and hand. And just to come back and, you know, show some resilience of trying to win a cup for me felt personally good. Again, it just didn't feel like I had the same touch on the team as I did in 2010. Um, But overall, you're just so happy to be a part of it again with a great group of guys. A different contribution, obviously quite gratifying for you if you had to go through all that. I don't want to get too graphic. I never heard of that. An injection in the pubic bone. Is that the absolute worst thing? Yeah, so what they do is, so I had an inflamed pubic bone. So what happens is they do PRP. Um, they could do cortisone as well, but they do blood. So they take your blood, um, they spin it, and then they inject it basically right, they poke a needle right through your pubic, right into the oh bone. Boy. And then they inject the blood right there because there's not enough blood flow to help with the healing and with the inflammation. So they they basically inject right into your pubic bone and you have to sit out for a week, let it settle. And then that's, that's kind of that there, there's different ways to treat it, but that's what I used was a, a thing called PRP. Worst thing ever. Or, uh, now that it's done, you can look back and kind of, I don't know, chuckles the word, but yeah, it was horrible. Yeah. Oh, when you're, when sounds horrible. There's, there's no freezing either. They could freeze it, but oh. I remember the way we kind of go about it. It was just, Hey, lay there, get ready. This needle like this long is going into your pubic bone or like, yeah, and they just stuff it right in and put it in there. Don't let anyone tell you hockey players aren't tough. Chris, injuries really caught up with you, as you've discussed, in the next few seasons, and you ended up moving on to play overseas in the Swedish and Russian pro leagues. What were your overseas experiences like in Sweden and Russia? Were these positive experiences? 
Yeah, I think overall they were positive. I remember in Russia, I actually ended up getting shingles over there. And and then my wife wasn't able to get over because some um, visa things at the time. Again, I think it would have taken a bit longer for them to get over. But, you know, between getting shingles and then missing my family, I just felt it was too much and I needed to go home. It had nothing to do with the league or the people or anything. I actually had a great experience with the guys. I thought everyone treated me well. The team treated me well. It was just you're, you're away from your family. And at that time... The finance didn't make enough sense to be away from the family um, for me personally. So I came home. I didn't play for about four months. A Swedish team bought me out of my contract, went to Sweden, had an incredible finish to the season. I kind of knew, though, with my hip that I was done. I, I mean, I was in pain every day between having, you know, you have to take a ton of Advil and Tylenol just to get through a game. And then you got to sleep still. And then you got to get up and do it all over again. And it was tough, you know, and then I'm doing cortisone shots in both hips and you're just like, how much more is it worth? So I remember trying to come back and play in the NHL again the next year. I had a great camp in Chicago. I knew it was going to be tough because they wanted young guys. I knew I was still better than those young guys. Like I went in camp and had a good camp, mm-hmm. but they had to play Alex Nylander and all these other guys. So I remember I went to the AHL. Um, they gave me the C, which was an incredible, incredible honor. I never wore the C before, um, but I went there. And between my hip and the, I got injured early on and, and the ups and downs, I remember being like, this is it. So um, I told the team I was done. Uh, I still wanted to play one more tournament. So I played the Spangler Cup, had an incredible tournament, um, had an incredible finish. We won the gold medal and then went to play with my brother a couple games in Slovakia and retired. So um, I physically knew it was done. I knew I could still play. I just couldn't, you know, it was hard to wake up every day and battle through the pain of practice where I used to like going to practice and being around the guys and going out there and doing things. I just couldn't do it anymore at the level I wanted to. And I didn't think that the reward was worth it anymore. I, mm-hmm. I you know, you're away from your family, you're miserable, you're in pain. And, and I thought it just sucked. And that's how I felt really the last six years of my career, you know, from 26 on right between my ACL, you come back, you recover, you get hurt again, you go back, you get hurt, you go back again. Now my hip has arthritis, you go back, you're just trying to hang on. So when it was over, I just remember being like, it's, it's done. I still look today and I still like, wow, I'd love to keep playing. But when you start Mm -hmm. to think about your body you're like, yeah, never mind, I just couldn't go through that again. So that piece is always hard, but it was hard to psychologically go through at those times too. just, just the day to day. And, uh, but when, you know, you know, I think. Well, it's good that you're so aware of yourself, Chris, and what your situation was. But just to go back a little, as you note, you had spent some time with the Rockford Ice Hogs in the AHL, wore the C, get to influence these younger players. But the most gratifying part of finishing your career, as you note, was the Spangler Cup winning and being able to play with your younger brother, Mitch, over in Slovakia. Just talk a little about that. That must have been thrilling for you and your family to be able to play with your brother. That's very rare. It was very rare. And, you know, I was always two years older than him, so I never really got to play hockey with him. Me and him have a, you know, a deep relationship too. He's he's my first teammate in the sense of we played on the street every single day. We couldn't afford spring hockey. We couldn't afford skating coach. Me and him never had, between me and my brother, we never had a skating coach, never played a second to spring hockey, never had a skill coach, never had nothing. We had each other. And we would go onto the street every single day 
and practice, right? We would practice on moves. We would practice our shooting. We would just practice, practice, practice. And, you know, it makes me emotional to think about, but without him, and again, your grandparents giving you that opportunity with the, with the stuff you needed, there's just no way I would have been me today because he pushed me to get better each and every day. So I remember at the end of my career being like, I need to find a way to play with him. So I called their GM and I said, Hey, I'm, I'd like to come play. And they, they had great ownership there and Nitra and great people. The the organization was incredible. I remember when I came there, they had, you know, 2000 people singing your name, right? Wow. Just that you came to play a game. So it's uh, those people in Slovakia love hockey damn near more than anyone. It, it was an incredible experience. And my brother played there for four years. So being on the ice with him, I remember in my last every game, you know, me and him assisted two goals together. Um, so it was pretty neat. You know, I passed to him, he took a shot on net and scored and, you know, you could hear Mitch Versteeg, Chris Versteeg together. So <laughs> no one will remember that, but me and him. Um, but it was a, it was an amazing moment, but you just think back. I remember before all these games thinking back on, you know, me and him playing on the street, playing in the basement, wrecking the walls, just everything. Well, those are fabulous memories. And I, I do want to give a shout out to, uh, he was a past guest on this podcast, Mr. Gino Cavallini. Who talked a lot about he had the chance to play with his brother Paul. They would they actually played on the same team in St. Louis, but he had some great stories about they would talk and they, they would kind of cover for each other. So if someone took liberties with Paul, Paul would be phoning Gino and Gino would uh, be waiting at the next game to take care of his brother. So That's hilarious. These stories are great. He was my protector too, right? He's six foot two, two twenty. I'm five ten, one. <laughs> So I remember anyone touched me on the ice in those games, he was going after him. Like he's, <laughs> he's nails, Mitch is. It's great to have a brother who you can, I I have to tell you, Chris, I had to watch out for my little brother all the time. So I know what it's like. I had to watch out for yeah, him. This a was thing. a Pleasant View house league, but uh, still I had to watch out for him. If you were enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Chris Versteeg, please enjoy more than 100 additional episodes available anytime. We've got former Maple Leafs Kent Mandeville, Alan Bester, Robert Picard, and Ken Reggett, Swedish and Jet superstar Anders Hedberg, Blue Jays World Series champion Rob Butler, Argos Grey Cup champion coach Adam Rita, and Toronto Pro Sports executives Bob Nicholson, David Cinnamon, Mark Kohan, and Bob Stelic. So many great behind-the-scenes stories directly from the Toronto legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about now about your entrepreneurial venture called Clever with a K. What is Clever? So Clever is an athletic platform that gives anyone the ability to gain an edge. So what that is, is what we've done is we've streamlined the ability to get a clip, edit and annotate that clip and share that clip. So in the process before, if you're a coach and you're wanting to teach something through video, you'd have to put it onto one platform, take it out, put it onto another, put it in a G drive whatever it may do, just to tra- just to teach one clip where I'm like, why can't you just send me a clip? I'll pull it up, voice over it, draw on it and send it back to you. And there's just no technology that has streamlined that. So now what you can do is you could literally teach and annotate 30, like for me, I, with my academy, I can teach and, and annotate 36 kids shots in under an hour. So if 36 kids send me them shooting in the driveway, I could teach it and send it off to their families in under an hour, 36 kids. So we streamlined that ability um, to do that. Uh, we have numerous coaching functions. We have digital whiteboards now. So before coaches, you know, they write on a piece of paper, they draw their drills on the side, X's and O's. And when you hand it to your coach, your coach is like, what is this chicken scratch? Like, I can't mm-hmm. even tell what the drill is you want me to do. And 
you know, when in, in, in Ontario and all these areas, we get 50 minutes of ice. So when you come to practice, you need to be prepared. So with our digital whiteboards is you pull up a hockey whiteboard, baseball, basketball, whatever the sport is, uh, you hit record, you start drawing and voicing over your drills. So it becomes a video file and then you send it off to your coach. So there's interaction there, right? Not only that, you can kind of see where your weak points of your team's games are. You can also make up and, and create drills on the digital whiteboard, send it to your coaches. And again, it's just more interactive rather than just a piece of paper and drawing. You're actually talking through what you're trying to teach. Um, and it just helps with better preparation. So again, we're just trying to save, especially the youth coaches in all sports time. Uh, and that's what we do. And it's it's been an incredibly fun and trying journey and uh, hopefully one day more people can get on clever just to try it out and uh, the last piece is we have a uh, um, a revolutionary camera piece where it actually clips back so in clever um, you'll hit the camera and you can record for five minutes if nothing happens don't tap this clip button if your kid scores a goal after five minutes you tap this k button it goes back three five ten fifteen mm-hmm. seconds and deletes the first four four and a half 455 4 minutes and 55 seconds whatever you choose so you're only saving the little bits of data that you need and then you could take those videos you can send them to family through text message you could send it to family in the app whatever you choose so again what we're trying to do is only make you save the important moments make those moments teachable or shareable and then uh you know educate people whether it be the athlete coach or the family member well it's amazing technology chris this is an app and uh People download it and use it. That's the that's the way they get it, their hands on it. Correct. K L E V R dot AI, and it's in the App Store for iPad and iPhone. And we're currently working on Android. What is it like being part of a business team as opposed to being part of a sports team? It's much the same in certain ways. Um, sports teams are different because you know you're there's that highs and lows of sports in the sense of like adrenaline. You know, there's there's anxiety with a business in, in the sense of, are people going to like this product? Are they going to use it? How am I going to get it in front of them? What do we have to do to get in front of them? There's a lot of that process of thinking that needs to come into a business, and that's what I'm trying to apply. But I'm also trying to find smarter people than me in this field that can help. And that's why we just recently hired our CEO, Justin DiGitano. He's currently exited his company, uh, his consulting company, uh, about a year ago, and now he's come on to help Clever. So I'm really trying to bring in business people that can help take the product and and help take this company to the next level, because obviously I can only take it so far. Well, that's great. Like We always hear that, don't we? Find people smarter than you and get them into your orbit. Yeah, exactly. I got some loose ends here for you, Chris. Do you know the very quirky piece of Chris Versteeg goal-scoring trivia? Hint, it's related to your stints in Chicago. Do you know what I'm talking about? I have no idea. You are the only person to score in three different stadiums belonging to three different sports leagues. You, of course, scored many goals for the Blackhawks in their home arena, United Center. You also scored in an outdoor game at Soldier Field, home of football's Da Bears. And you also scored in another outdoor game at legendary Wrigley Field, home of baseball's Chicago Cubs. Obviously, you have fond memories of Chicago. You, yeah. s- you scored in all the stadiums. And Allstate. Yeah, and, and I scored in Allstate Arena, too. Let's, upsta- let's update yeah. the records. Four. Four. Yeah, they got to update. No, that's I, I didn't realize that. Uh, the internet also says you have a reputation within the NHL for singing in public. Your specialties in the past have been Fergie's Glamorous, as well as LMFAO's Yes, as well as, quote, 
many impromptu performances for fans and media throughout his career, unquote. Chris, do you continue to speak publicly, uh, in the singing publicly, or in the shower? Where do you do your singing today? More in the shower now. Yeah, not so much publicly. Uh, I'll do it also at weddings as well. But again, I kind of, I have ballads now. I'm doing more Prince, Purple Rain, and and songs like that. I've kind of gone away from the R&B and pop and, and rap, you know, I'm a little older now and my, my kids won't be able to look at me, you know, seeing their old man rap and, and sing pop. So I sing, I sing Prince now. I like that you're maturing and your tastes are maturing. Yeah. Chris, where do you keep your two Stanley cup rings? In a vault. Far yeah. away. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't we, wear them? No, I've never wore them. No, I actually, that's a lie. I wore my 2010 ones three times. I wore it to the bar once. Yeah, I wore it to a restaurant, a restaurant, and then uh, I can't remember where the third place. I think I wore it to like a function they asked me to, but that was it. I've never wore the 2015 one. I don't even know if I put it on my hand, to be honest. Well, uh, I hope you get occasion in the future to dig them out of the vault and uh, I'm sure the younger players you work with will be inspired. You talked about uh, Phil Kessel being a great roommate from all your hundreds of road trips over your career. Any other favorite roommates you had? Lots. Cam Barker, he was my first one in Chicago. Well, Duncan Keith was my first one in Chicago. Uh, it was only obviously a couple weeks, or but Cam Barker was my first full-time roommate, a uh, good friend, and you know I've known him for quite a while now and still a good friend today. Interesting roommates, Nikolai Zherdev, uh, very interesting, interesting guy, funny guy, but interesting. And uh, who else would I, you know, Thomas Fleischman was Florida. I'd have to go back through them all. But Thomas Fleischman, what an incredible guy. Uh, he has a cra- uh, pretty crazy story, story too. Sorry, he had a blood disease. Something to do with platelets and, and stuff like that. So he was always on injections. And it was pretty pretty remarkable. But um, he was one of my favorite roommates as well. Today, you always hear, of course, Chris, about all these younger players are immediately back to the room on the video games. I don't think that was as big a part in your day what would you do to kind of kill time and between games and practices i remember we'd throw our our a bag down in the room and go have a beer at the bar that was yeah. kind of it you know it wasn't not so much night before games i think night before games you'd always get with your roommate again it's different now because the kids don't have roommates they only have it on their first contract really they might have a roommate but we used to have to have roommates till game 600 so mm-hmm. we had roommates forever so Night before games, me and Cam Barker, Fleischman, we'd always, you know, go for dinner, seven, eight, go rent a movie, eight to ten, and then probably shut the shut the mill by eleven or twelve, somewhere in there. But it was always movie the night. But if it was two nights before, everyone would go to the bar, you have a drink, talk to the guys, just you were around the guys a ton. And that's what you do. You just drop your bag in the room, head out, go grab a drink with the guys. Not that everyone was always having drinks. They, you know, just to be around the guys was the biggest thing and talk and talk about the games, talk about life. And it was, uh, it was pretty, pretty amazing. I think that's what makes winning teams. It's the, it's the contact and the relationships. Yeah. And again, you don't have to be out having a beer, right? You don't have to be out going out to a club. You, you, it's being together, getting to know people away from the game and, and having a deeper commitment to that person, you know? And I think that's the biggest thing we had in Chicago that, nowhere else I played really had like some teams had it to an extent, but just the, you know, Hey, what are you doing tonight? You want to grab dinner? Hey, you want to come over and watch this game? Hey, do you want to come watch the bachelor? Hey, do you want to, you know, there was just a lot of things we did together and uh, it made it special. Well, the proof is in the results championships. 
We know all about the big name players, Jonathan Taze, Patrick Kane, Marion Hossa. Chris, who are kind of underrated players that you either played with or against that didn't get their credit for whatever reason? Nicholas Jalmerson, probably the first and foremost player that comes to mind. I mean, this guy skated like I remember telling my wife every time a puck hits him I feel like he's he's literally hobbling off the ice just to get off and then I'm like he broke his foot he broke his leg he broke his arm and then he's back out there playing I'm like I don't know how he's on the ice he barely made it to the bench and this would happen twice a game barely alive right now how is he going back on the ice he just had an incredible stick he was an incredible teammate he would get in your face too. If he didn't like how you were playing, he'd let you know, but he was also a very kind and compassionate guy too. So uh, we had a lot of those guys though. A lot of guys that would get in your face if you weren't playing well. Um, but we also, I think, handled criticism within each other really well. You know, no one took it personally. Um, but Nicholas Jalmerson's the number one guy I think of. You go throughout the lineup, Dave Boland was a guy that did his part. Obviously, I never played with him in 2013 when he won, but he scored a big goal and he was always around at big moments. Um, but that would be probably the two players that I would remember the most. And Chris, talk about Dale Talon as a mentor. You thanked him uh, when you retired. Dale, again, was the guy. Him, Yeah, he traded for me from Boston to Chicago. I still remember him talking to me about it, saying, hey, we went there to watch Peter Callis and one other player, and I left the rink. They were in Hartford. They came to watch because the trade was going to happen from Chicago to Boston, but the initial deal was Callis and someone else for Brandon Bochensky, but Dale apparently came to watch Providence play that day. And he said, we're not leaving without getting Versteeg. So I remember, I remember I had a good game against Hartford that game, but I still remember the talk with him, brought me to Chicago, had a lot of memories with Dale at the start. Obviously it wasn't great for me at the start because I was trying to find my way, but he was always honest with me and upfront ended up making Chicago. Obviously it didn't end the way it, he would have liked in Chicago, nor would have I have because it happened with my contract where someone didn't send out the uh, qualifying offer. And that's why we ended up getting paid quite a bit more money, but he brings me to Florida, gives me an opportunity there. And yeah, obviously I ended up getting traded from Florida, but him as a man to me has always been a role model. He's always been an incredible guy, very upfront with me. And he has an incredible eye for talent, especially diamonds in the rough kids mm -hmm. and young men that you don't think are going to make it, but somehow become, if not great, sometimes even all-stars and, you know, between Patrick Sharp and all these guys, he was able to go out and identify these guys that made the Stanley cup winning teams that good. So he, uh, he's a person that, uh, I still think about today. And if it wasn't for him, obviously who knows where I'd be. Another guy that made a huge impact on you, especially towards the end of your hockey career was Brad Treliving. How was he influential in your life? Yeah. Brad was awesome. Again, um, Gave me an opportunity at the end. I thought I was going to go to Edmonton. He ended up bringing me into Calgary. You know, I went to Edmonton on a tryout. He brings me into Calgary. Um, always, again, talking to him in the room, asking me how I'm doing, um, asking me about the feel of the room. Just trusted me a lot, I thought, in in an opportunity where he didn't have to because I was brought in on a you know, a short one-year deal. But he, I think he really tried to always gauge the room, see what guys were feeling, um, seeing what he could do to make the team better. Um, and again, so I think when I look at people who were influential on me, they didn't just treat me as, you know, they didn't treat you as like another cow. You know, you're not just cattle. You're treated as a person first and foremost. Now you have, it's a business, 100%. You have to accept that, but you, you know, they looked at you as a, a, a person first and foremost. So between Brian Burke and Brad Trelevin, I have 
you know, the utmost respect for them. And I always said, whatever they ask of me, you know, I'd always be willing to answer their calls. That's great. Well, Chris, even though you are retired, the old man who's retired, it wasn't that long ago you were playing. And in fact, if I'm not mistaken, you played with Mark Giordano, who uh, we are hoping will be part of a cup win here in Toronto. What was your experience like playing with Mark? Mark's the hardest working player. I remember this guy like lifting heavyweights day before games. I'm like, Gio, you're going to burn out. How are you doing this? He'd still go out the next night, have a goal, two assists as a D-man. I'd be like, this guy's a freak of nature. He li- he is a freak of nature physically. Um, again, slowed down slightly, but he still has the brain and the compete and the will and the want to keep up. And when you guys brought him into Toronto, I was like, why are they not using him more at the start? Right? You were playing certain players, and I remember talking about it on the radio. I'm like, you guys got to get Geo out there more. He can do more than 13, 14 minutes a night. I know he's helping your third D pair, but he still can contribute. And I think when when Riley goes down and these guys go down and he has to step up, you saw what he could still do. So I think that instills more confidence, obviously, in Sheldon Keefe's mind. I just think it Sheldon Keefe is a coach where it's hard to get confidence from him. Like Kyle Clifford, all these guys that you bring in to fill roles and you never use these guys in roles. I'm like, you have the guys there that give you the value, but you do not use, right? And it's Jason Spetz, the same thing. I'm like, I know they're older, but ride these horses, man. They're going to help mm-hmm. you in. And Sheldon hasn't done that enough. He hasn't made hard enough decisions to put guys into uh, positions to help get them past certain rounds. That is my critical take of him. And if he can do that, he has a team that can go first, second, third, fourth round. But it's on Sheldon now to understand. You got Geo. Get that guy on the ice. Let him fail. Stop putting guys like nothing against Lilligren. He's good, but you're going to succeed more with Geo than you are with Lilligren. You're mm-hmm. going to succeed more than with Hall. You're going to succeed with him. So put the horses out there, and Geo's a guy that can do it because he wants to do it. Well, Chris, I'd be remiss if I did not put you on the spot. You are living in the GTA. You have won two championships. You are obviously following the league closely is this the year 56th campaign it'll be the 14th year um where we uh have not sorry 18th year in fact to go through the first round is this the year the leafs do it this is the year and i've never said that before (laughs) this is the year you get past the first round i'm not going to say stanley cup there's no chance i don't trust the coaching staff enough yet and and just just be brutally honest i think he's an incredible coach he does good things. I just, I need to see him make hard decisions and hard times. And to win one round, that's fine. He's got the talent to do it. But to win two, three, four rounds, you're going to have to do a lot of hard things and things you don't like as a coach. And I hope he can do it. And and I do think this is the year 100% to get out of the first round. All right. Well, you heard it here. Christopher Stieg says first year for sure. The first round for sure. Unsure of future rounds. But hey, listen, 18 years, we'll take it. Yeah. You've been great with your time. Let's close off with you giving some advice. Younger players and young people trying to achieve something. Now, whether it's in sports or school or life, what's your advice to young people? Put time and and put a lot of effort into that thing that you love. Now, again, life is short. Life uh, goes fast. And if you're only going to dedicate yourself 50% of the time or... 50% of what your competitors are doing or the people in your field are doing, don't expect yourself to succeed. So if you want to do something, you got to be willing to do things that others aren't willing to do. And the first step is time. How much time are you willing to put into that thing that you want to do and to become great at? And again, go after it. I know, again, everyone says go after it, but life's short, man. And I mean, 
you think about it yourself. Um, how many things in your past did you want to do and you didn't do it? I mean, think of entrepreneurs, right? These guys had something that they believed in and they stuck through the highs and lows to get that and be ready to go through hell to get there. So it's ne it's never a straight line. And what do you say to pro athletes nearing the end of their athletic careers and needing to transition to a life off the ice, off the field? You haven't been through it yourself. Uh, when they ask you for advice, what do you what do you tell them? Well, I, I feel like I'm still in that transition, to be honest, because I still look at guys my age and I still feel really good mentally. And I know when I'm on the ice, I can still do things. So I still feel like I'm in that transition of, man, I can still play. Obviously, six, seven years ago, like my body can't get there, but I'm still transitioning out of that mindset of, man, I, I can still play. But again, I've, I've, I don't know what the right advice is. So I'd be lying to say, take a year off think about everything and then come back and do something. I didn't do that. I literally retired. People were asking me to look at their clips and this is how clever got started because my agent was trying to get me to look at some of his players clips. And so then I was like, let's get to work. Let me figure out how to make a solution that helps coaches teach over video fast and efficient. So again, that's for me is I hopped into something that I thought could solve a problem and I stayed busy. Um, I have offered players coming out of retire coming into retirement to job shadow me and to come follow and see if entrepreneur entrepreneurship or something in this field is something that they would want to do in their next life. So I have offered that for players. So if there's ever players listening, obviously you could always reach out, but I would be lying to you to tell you if I knew the advice. I think it's different for any, everyone. I've listened to Chris Pronger. He said, take a year off and don't do anything. So I think the biggest thing is don't put too much on your plate. That would be advice. Don't just say yes to everything and all of a sudden you're overwhelmed and you don't know what to do. I think, you know, find things that you love. And for me, the thing I actually love the most is coaching, you know, yeah. it's being on the bench, feeling that those ups and downs again, the highs and lows of a game. You're like, you know, you just don't get it anywhere else besides in a sporting event. Well, I think it's great that you've been able to combine your entrepreneurial spirit with your coaching enthusiasm so that's fantastic chris where can we best follow you and the ongoing development of the clever app yeah me personally at stigalicious s-t-i-g-a-l-i-c-i-o-u-s that's on instagram uh, because of fergalicious obviously that <laughs> is a handle made a long time ago clever app k-l-e-v-r-a-p-p -P on instagram clever app on tiktok and k-l-e-v-r.ai is our website so you can kind of check it out learn more, reach out to us for demos, whatever you need. It's, uh, there's, two, there's two spaces you can follow. Chris, thanks for your time. It was great catching up with you. And I want to wish you continued success with Clever and with your coaching. Awesome. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. And to the listeners, we say thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. And on behalf of Chris Christie, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. Emily Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. 
Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.